Podcast. I am Jason, and with me today is an extremely special guest. He is the host of the In All Airness NBA History Podcast at inallairness.com. Adam Ryan, welcome to the show, sir. Hi, Jason. Thanks very much for having me on, mate. I appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting with you today. Yeah, um, I'm really happy to have you on the show. I've done excellent work for many years, particularly research for your series uh, detailing the each year of Michael Jordan's career, the the NB uh, 85, 86, now 87 series. Some great work from you. So excited to have you uh, on the show for this. Yeah, I'm excited to chat to you as well. Uh, looking forward to it. So we're uh, starting a new series. Don't even have a name for it yet. Hopefully we'll have a name for it by the time we release this episode. But uh, with uh, uh, other podcasters and writers looking at past moments that were formative in them becoming an uh, NBA fan. And uh, you picked some moments from uh, 1989, which we'll get into in a little bit. But uh, so... Growing up, obviously, in Australia, halfway around the world from where the NBA is played and in, you know, before there is extensive cable and satellite and every game is, you know, on the air. How much were you exposed to the NBA in 1989? How much were you able to see? How were you kind of able to see it? Well, back in 1989, and I was, I think, 13, almost 14 years old at that stage, um, we'd only get one game a week on TV here in Australia. It was on the national abc channel here in uh in australia so we get one game a week usually it would be at least two weeks or so old uh so it would, it would have happened quite a a little while earlier and then we get to see the an edited replay of maybe oh, 60 to 90 minutes that would then be aired uh, a couple of weeks after the event so it was very limited even back at that stage here in australia but it was better than nothing and uh also the national league here in australia was just starting to really take off and become more popular in the late 80s but also into the early 90s when it really had its boom period uh largely thanks to i guess uh, the great andrew gaze who was an australian legend here of course um so it was really starting to pick up in popularity but when i was that age um i was introduced to the game of basketball by a friend of mine at school so prior to that i hadn't really done or had much involvement with basketball. I just sort of played it socially, and that was about it. But then I started to get into it and actually play it uh, competitively. I never was any real good. Uh, I was just a three-point bomber. That was about it. <laughs> That's all I could do, really. Um, and so started to really get into the magazines, and I started to buy a few basketball digests, uh, which I really loved back in the day, and then the Hoop magazine uh, and some of the yearly recaps uh, and magazines that were put out. So we got some of those um, publications here in Australia, but yeah, it was quite limited in the late 80s, and it only really started to take off into the early 90s, I guess. So the first game that you um, that you brought up is the uh, the 1989 All-Star game. Before we get into it, I'll, I'll share a few facts about it. Uh, the West won 143 to 134. Carl Malone was MVP with 28 points, uh, nine rebounds with his mother at uh, courtside. It was in the Eastern Houston Astrodome with the record crowd at the time of 44,735. Uh, there was no Magic Johnson or Larry Bird. Uh, Magic was uh, injured just short term in the uh, game. Bird only played six years that uh, year with the back injury. And this was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's uh, final All-Star game as an injury replacement for uh, Magic Johnson. And this was his 19th All-Star game overall in a 20-year career. Pretty impressive, obviously. So um, what are some of your memories of this game? What, what stands out about it to you? Well, to start with, from the 89th season, um, I recorded 
some games on VHS tapes. So I'm already showing my age uh, talking about the VHS tapes. But <laughs> I recorded a few games and kept them on videotape. Sometimes I'd record over them just with the following week's games, whatever aired. But there was a few select games that I did keep. And then it was only really after the 89 season, I started to think, well, I might actually keep these on tape and actually continue to watch them over and over, which I did. And I, my brother as well, um, I almost forced him to watch them with me over the years. And he grew to love the game as well, uh, just because we watched them so often. So the 89 All-Star game was one of the first games that I kept on videotape. And we basically watched it, my brother Luke, that is, we basically watched it until the tape almost wore out. So we'd just watch it over and over. Um, it just looked, it was so fascinating at this time to see their production. I mean, this was CBS telecast. Um, I was just enamored by uh, Dick Stockton and Hubie Brown and just seeing the pregame introduction even. Um, Pat O'Brien doing the intros and whatnot as far as uh, just doing different features. And it just was so exciting and uh, I just couldn't get enough of it. And then... Uh, it wasn't too long after that that I'd start to get into buying the magazines and trying to learn about who these players were. Um, just the whole atmosphere of being the, the all-star game as well. So it had a certain appeal because obviously the best players in the world were all playing uh, future Hall of Famers left, right and centre. It was just uh, so exciting to watch and um, I just couldn't get enough of it. So that was my first exposure to Michael Jordan as well was this 89 all-star game. And, uh, of course, he had a pretty good game himself. I think he had almost 30 points in this game. Uh, just players putting on an absolute show, and that's what the All-Star game really was all about during the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. And you talking about the videotapes, I mean, that's really – I'm close to the same age that you are, and that, that really was for people you know, who grew up in the 80s and early 90s. Um, rewatching those videotapes, recording stuff of off-TV, and you, you, know, you, weren't, you, you obviously didn't have YouTube. You were – uh, you know, at the mercy of a limited number of things that you could watch over and over again, unless you, you know, had thousands of videotapes and very few people had that kind of foresight. So, you know, you, you were, you know, you know I, I did it, some with basketball, but, but because I, I used to watch, um, uh, the Kareem uh, videotape, the um, uh, reflections from inside. Yes, thank you. From yeah, that's that's what it was called. Yeah, I I loved that one as a Kareem was my favorite as a kid. So um, yeah, I, and obviously I rewatched the the Jordan ones as well, and, and some other videotapes and seeing. You know, that's how I really learned about the uh, the, the Celtics-Lakers rivalry, and um, that was obviously very formative in, you know, my first becoming a fan, which was kind of around 87 or 88 or so. Um, but, but it mean, really is the, those memories really, you know, that stuff that you grew up watching over and over again as a kid, it really sinks in, and, and it might, you know, with having so many more options that kids can have today um you know i'm not sure that repeat watching you know exists in the same way as it did when we were kids yeah that's a great point because literally my brother and i we'd watch these games over and over and there was a, a three in particular we're talking about the 89 all-star game and then there's maybe another one or two we might chat about shortly but those three games were particularly and two of them were bulls games were particularly the impetus for what actually led to my love of the nba and and why i'm so obsessed with the old school and the 1980s and 1990s like it's just such a nostalgic period of time where i just look back so uh favorably on those years and just the memories i've got uh of time with my my brother and of course my uh, grandparents because we'd often watch these videotapes at my grandparents house uh, we just take over their tv and video video player and we just watch these games over and over and so you start to develop a a love for uh, the game and you start to see players and think oh i want to know more about them and 
I think that's even why I'm so intrigued and, and fascinated by the history of the game even today, uh, looking back on these early years where I really first got into the game and, and saw these great contests like the 89 All-Star game. You know, the the, the role of the All-Star game, you know, in, in the NBA and other sports, it, it, it's very different now because it's not unusual to see any of these guys on, you know, national global television anymore. I mean, all these guys, you know, you... I, I assume in Australia, there's obviously this league pass and there's, you know, much more NBA available than there was in 1989. And obviously in the United States and many other places in the world, you know, we, the, the all-star game isn't really, doesn't necessarily have the same special feeling for the fans. And I'm, you know, based on the level of effort that's given during the game, doesn't really have the same, you know, feeling for the players. And, but in the eighties, it, it was really different. I mean, you know, Alex English wasn't on, you know, national TV all the time. You know, a lot of these guys were, you know, they were names that people knew, but they weren't like at nearly as exposed as, you know, um, as players are today. They just didn't have the, the opportunity to stand out there or something. So, you know, per, your performance in an all-star game really could, you know, was, was one of few opportunities that some of these guys had to be on national television. I'm sure that added to the intensity and to the, you know, the glamour of the game. Indeed, it did. Indeed, it did. And also, you mentioned Alex English there. Um it was only in the first couple of seconds of the 89 All-Star game where he got the ball, I think, off the tip to open the game and pass it to Dale Ellis to throw down a big dunk in the uh, opening seconds of the contest. So just seeing, there's just plays I can just remember so vividly. Uh, obviously, I've rewatched some of these in the lead up to our chat today, but just watching Alex, Alex English hit some baseline jumpers and I mean, it's just things you just take for granted back in that time. But because it wasn't everywhere, as you said, and it's not just plastered all over social media, the internet basically didn't exist back in this time. So uh, to be able to cherish these recordings you have on videotape, I think that's also a special thing which sort of helped uh, foster uh, our respective love of the game. Uh, one of my favorite stat lines from this game is uh, John Stockton, who was the only point guard for the West because of mm. Magic not being in the game. 11 points, 17 assists, 5 steals, and 12 turnovers. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like to focus too much on the turnovers, but there's some fantastic <laughs> stats there. And I think he, he set a, a then all-star record with 8 or 9 assists in the first period. So uh was off to an absolute flyer. And uh, also, it was great that you mentioned Kareem and how he was one of your favorite players because there was a bit of drama in this game towards the end uh, when the scores started to tighten up because the West were ahead by almost... 20, 20 points, I think it was at the half, so or 30 points even at the half. Um, but Kareem was hopefully looking to get his last couple of points to take him to the head of the uh, all-time leading scorers for All-Star history. So there was a bit of drama there as well, and I'm sure you would have enjoyed seeing him uh, get that court time towards the end and, and break that record. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Kareem, you know, he struggled his last season a lot. I mean, the Lakers were successful. They made the finals um, and might have given the Pistons a good series if it had been for Magic and uh, Byron Scott getting hurt. But uh, nevertheless, you know, personally, that year was kind of disappointing for um, him, even though he was able to get a farewell tour. And it was it was that was kind of cool. But um yeah, I, you know, some other things that stand out. Uh, Moses Malone, this was also his last All-Star appearances, a 12th in a row, in fact. It was his first year in Atlanta. Um, and something that never occurred to me before, Moses was actually only a year and a half older than Larry Bird, despite playing for five seasons before Bird joined the NBA. Hmm. Yeah, I actually hadn't realized that myself, so there you go. Great stat. 
Yeah, he, and he played three seasons after Bird retired, of course. So he obviously played an extremely long time. But that's uh, interesting there for uh, most. He was nearing the end, obviously, of you know of his really really effective um, play in his career. But the Atlanta was still pretty good. Him and uh, Dominique Wilkins, who both uh, play in this game. Um, anything else that stands out for um, you know the um, for any of the players uh, here that take part in this game? Um, well, there was great. Um... A great couple of great passes throughout the game, of course. But Isaiah Thomas had a fantastic uh, uh, pass to Jordan. Well, actually, he did two, really. He did one off the glass, run into the right of screen, and Jordan then uh, caught the ball off the backboard and uh, dunked it home. And then again, later in the game, I think uh, Hubie Brown caught it a one-skip pass. Uh, Isaiah had a fantastic almost three-quarter court length pass to Jordan going to the left of screen, uh, which was a great dunk as well. He just threaded the needle there. So there's a couple of fantastic highlights there. But the game was littered with with great dunks uh, from both the West and East and just some some fantastic players almost at the absolute peak of their careers. And, and of course, there was Hall of Famers all over the place as well. So uh, just some, some great memories. Um, I think even pre-game, uh, James Brown, because it was a CBS telecast, he was talking to MJ. Uh, Jordan had... I don't know if he actually was officially in the dunk contest leading up to the event, but he pulled out of it because of a sore knee, yet he still managed to score almost 30 points the next day and, of course, had a, a myriad of highlights. So um, just plenty of things do stand out. I could probably talk about the game all day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it, it, it's a fun game to watch. It's on YouTube, obviously. Um, yeah, um, I mean, obviously, Jordan, 28 points, 5 steals. Isaiah had 19 points, 14 assists, and you mentioned some of their highlights together. This was really before the uh, the Bulls-Pistons rivalry would become, you know, an intense <laughs> thing starting the season. So, I mean, the bad feelings, I, I, I think there had been some issues with them. Obviously, there was that freeze-out in the in a previous All-Star game, but um, obviously, the, the bad blood was not quite as strong as it would later become. That's right. It hadn't quite uh, boiled to the surface at this stage. Yes. So uh, we're going to move on to um, Game 5 of the Eastern Conference uh, first round. The uh, Bulls taking on the Cleveland Cavaliers in uh, Cleveland. And, um, you know, what's really interesting about this is, you know, the, the Cavs honestly were in a position here with Mark Price, with Brad Doherty, uh, Ron Harper, Hot Rod Williams, who are all 26 and under, plus guys like Larry Nance and Craig Elo, and, you know, a really deep roster. Lenny Wilkins is coach. They were just as easily the team of the future at this point as the Bulls were. I mean, obviously, the, the Cavs didn't have anyone as great as Jordan, but you look at, you know, the top seven guys in that roster, and, you know, Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen, not quite, you know, both still good, but you really have no idea what they're going to become, and, you know, they have, they have a nice bench, but... You know, along with the Knicks, who we're going to talk about in a little while. Um, you know, as as the um, Celtics are aging and they're uncertain, and uh, you know the Pistons still haven't won their championship. Obviously, really good, but not quite the team of the future. It was very open ended at this point, and the um, you know the Bulls winning this series, Jordan hitting the shot that we're going to talk about. Um, you know, obviously put the uh, the Bulls ahead of the, the game at that point, but it wasn't inevitable. The Cavs were a really good team. Oh, they were fantastic. Uh, I loved watching Cleveland back in this era. And retrospectively, since I've uh, obviously been a massive fan of the NBA, I've gone back and tried to collect as many of these games as I possibly can on videotape and then also DVD, but now basically on YouTube, which is an incredible resource. Uh, there's just continuing games to be uploaded from throughout the, well, basically the NBA's history. There's just some fantastic stuff which gets uploaded, so it doesn't really matter as much these days. You can find it all online. 
But this is another one that I recorded on videotape. Um, but yeah, I, I was fascinated by the Cavs back at this year, these uh, seasons, um, particularly Mark Price, Craig Elo, uh, Ronnie Harper. Just great stuff to to watch these guys. And as you as you're saying, the Cavs were like the, they were the number three seed uh, heading into this series, so they were the favourites. And Bulls were underdogs; they were the number six seed, but managed to pull off a, a massive upset, I guess, uh, in terms of what the expect, expectations were. I think Johnny Bark actually, I'm not sure when he said it, but he since said following the series that that basically killed the Cavaliers for the next decade or more in terms of what they could do. Uh, they were just psyched out by the fact that uh, Jordan seemed to own them as a franchise, basically, uh, on the back of this performance in, in Game 5. So it's just another one that I kept on video watched it over and over, uh, can just remember play after play. And then probably even just around this, the age of when podcasts first started, so maybe 10, 11 years ago, whenever it was, um, it wasn't long after that that I actually converted the audio from this game into MP3 and put it onto my whatever my MP3 player was at the time and then actually played it through either the portable player or even put it onto CD and listened to it in the car. So I know the I know the commentary track of this game like few others. So I just couldn't get enough of it. So obviously it made a, a massive impact on me going forwards. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> great that, or that's sad? Classic. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, uh, you know, a little bit of both. That's that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, a, it's fantastic. Yeah. So I love talking about this sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I had a friend who did that with wrestling. So, um, you know, we, we, which works in the same way, I think, in terms of the commentary, you know, the, the memorable commentary and, and, and descriptions, of course. And, um, you know, basketball is, um, it, it, I think, is is a really good, I mean, obviously prefer to see it, but, um, you know, a really good commentator can really draw that out. And that's, you know, I, I'd love to listen to some of like the 60s and 70s games audio if, if some of that became available, because that would be, you know, obviously if there's no video of those games, at least some of that audio would be uh, terrific to have and there's a little bit here and there but but not really you know not much extensive of course not true very true so um yeah i mean really i mean obviously the shot itself um you know jordan's you know fantastic shot over um Craig Elo where Jordan's you know basically hanging in the air and then Elo falls and Jordan's still up there then he releases the shot and um you know we've seen we've seen the classic video of him you know pumping his fist and getting excited and of uh you know Doug Collins running around like crazy and and all that sort of thing but um I mean the last three minutes of this game are just are really you know non-stop exciting action um you know the the, the exchange leads I think nine times in the last three minutes you know um Elo looks like he's going to be the a hero after um he gets a driving layup and the and the Cavs have you know a, a one point lead with three seconds left and um you know before they obviously left Jordan enough time for theatrics but it certainly you know the, the, the Cavs might pull it off I mean they, they came obviously extremely close and you talked about them being you know the heavier underdogs they were six and zero versus the Bulls during this uh season and they had a 57 win record versus the um uh, the the Bulls with a 47 win record actually had gone down a little bit from the uh, previous year. So um, yeah, it was just definitely a uh, it was a wild thing. Now, was this? Do you feel like this is you know the moment where um, you know were the Bulls your favorite team at this point, or did this help obviously lead them to become your favorite team and and Jordan to become your favorite player, or did you feel like that had already kind of been established before? No, I think that that's a good question. I think this was probably the game that cemented my love for the Bulls and and uh, following pretty much anything that Jordan did. Um, prior to that, I just had a few games on videotape that I'd kept. The 89 All-Star game, of course. So 
talk about having a, a great uh, selection of players to possibly follow uh, after having watched that game. But I was just love the league, and yet I hadn't known all that much about it. So that's when I started to look for those basketball digesters, what I ended up finding, um, the Hoop magazine. And then it was only a couple of years later where I'd start to collect the basketball cards. And then they were a wealth of information especially pre-internet, of course, where you can learn so much in such a, a small space about uh, little stats and figures about these players. So it was probably this game that uh, helped cement that for me to follow the Bulls. But um, I've just always always been a massive fan of the franchise. Uh, a lot of people, perhaps mistakenly, and I, maybe I've set it up myself to think that I'm just a massive Michael Jordan fan and that's it, but I, I just adore the history of the game and it doesn't matter which player or team, uh, I can be just as interested in uh, the expansion Timberwolves, say, for example, uh, when they first came into the league as I would be about the Bulls during their championship runs. So I just love the history of the game. and um, But this game particularly would have helped cement my love for the Bulls uh, above anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, something I've always wondered of when exactly did this become known as the shot and how it became known as the shot? Because obviously there were, you know, lots of famous shots in NBA history before uh, this shot. I mean, um, you know, Kareem's uh, skyhook in the 74 finals or, uh, you know, um, Garfield Hurd's, you know, shot at uh, in the 76 finals. Or, mm. you know, there's plenty of good examples of the shot. But for whatever reason, this one... You know, which is is an incredible shot, but happened in, in a you know to win a first round series um, in and of itself, not necessarily you know the most important context, but obviously later as it became part of the arc of Jordan's career, and it is he you know um, you know elevated the the Bulls to team greatness more than just the individual greatness, it, it became known as a shot. But I'm always curious, like kind of when that became you know when it, when it solidified itself as the shot. That's a great question. I actually don't know when it officially would have been the shot. And it's interesting as well that even in the 98 finals, where, of course, Jordan hits arguably the other the shot, um, this 89 game, it's still known as the shot ahead of any other particular ones he made as far as game winners or shots to go ahead in the final seconds of a game uh, than he did in the rest of his career. So when it actually first happened or who coined it as the shot and then it just became known as that. I think you raised a good point, though, when you said that it helped uh, solidify the the arc of his career. I suppose, retrospectively, it may have been then become the shot in the early to mid-90s. I don't even know. Um, I've, I have a poster that was put out by the Chicago Tribune, I think it was, um, which has uh, still frames. I think there's three frames the showing the shot or maybe four frames showing the shot go in and their reactions of people and it's titled the shot i don't know if that was released uh in the next day's newspaper at the time or they did that in the years following and it became a special release i'm not actually too sure but yeah you raise a good point as to when it first actually became the shot yeah well there is you know it has kind of its place in the cleveland sports history of the time because the browns uh in football had the drive and the and the fumble where both situations where they were about to go to the super bowl or about to about to win the game and then something bad happened to them and, and the shot kind of is in the same context of that so i i i it may have just come from 
you know, Cleveland's miserable, you know, sports luck. And then it kind of got pulled as, you know, as, you know, one of Jordan's iconic moments. But um, uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure either. If anybody, obviously, if they do know and, and can tell us, that would be uh, uh, wonderful to find out. And I, I know you'll obviously, uh, you're, you're doing your research through, um, you know, of Jordan's career. And maybe you'll be able to find out through uh, that. But that's uh, something I've always wondered. Yeah, well, at the moment, uh, we're rounding out the 1987 season. We're retrospectively covering the Jordan's career 30 years after the event, and uh, that's Aaron, Steen, and myself. Um, so, yeah, we're getting towards the end of 87 season, and we're looking forward to getting into 88, which, of course, was a, a fantastic year for Jordan particularly. Uh, and then not too long after that, we'll get into the 89, and we may actually uncover when that was when it actually became the shot. But as you said, uh, if someone can let us know when it actually did happen, then by all means, uh, I'd like to know. Yeah, absolutely. So um, another uh, dramatic game um, would be from the same season would be a game six of the next round, the the Nixon Bulls uh, in in Chicago. And um, the Knicks are another uh, rising E squad at the time, obviously, you know, with uh, Patrick Ewing as their main star, another potential team of the uh, 90s. And these were known as, as the Bomb Squad Knicks. They'd actually uh, attempted um, 1,147 three-pointers, which is more than 400 uh, up from the uh, previous uh, record in the NBA. And they uh, had made 386, which was uh, more than 100 uh, past the uh, previous record. Uh, in retrospect, the uh, the current record for three point attempts is uh, three thousand three hundred and six. <laughs> the twenty seventeen Rockets with um, with one thousand one hundred eighty one made. So they actually made more last season than the Knicks attempted uh, in uh, in eighty nine. But you know, you, you uh, being the three point specialist, you would have fit in pretty well with the uh, eighty nine Knicks. <laughs> I could have come off the bench as the sixth man. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's fantastic because. Um, I'm six foot one, maybe six foot two on a good day from on tippy toes. Um, but I'd always, uh, my teammates would be livid because I'd never actually go inside the key. I'd just always hang around the three point line and just throw up bombs. So, uh, I was never looked upon favorably, uh, as a post player yeah. in my own terrible <laughs> career. But yeah, it's Wait, funny, yeah. funny that you say, um, about the bomb squad there. I actually had no idea that the Knicks had shot that many. I knew of the nickname for their squad, um, being called the bomb squad, but that's a, a startling figure when you think about it that way having so many more attempts uh, than any other team um, throughout that time. Yeah. And, you know, they were they they were 52-win team, so this was another upset for the uh, Bulls. It swept the 76ers in the first round, and they'd actually beaten the Pistons um, in the uh, off four games in the regular season and believed that, you know, they could have beaten the Pistons had they reached the conference finals. Uh, and, of course, in addition to Ewing, they had Charles Oakley, who had been traded um, – from the Bulls for uh, Bill Cartwright in the previous offseason, uh, as well as Mark Jackson, Gerald Wilkins, um, Johnny Newman, uh, Kiki Vandaway, whose father had been a Knicks legend at a small role off the bench. Uh, Rod Strickland is also off the uh, bench. Uh, Sidney Green, also a former Bull. So uh, mm. interesting mix of um, you know former Bulls and former uh, Knicks uh, going, on, uh, going on here as well. Yeah, there was. And also, uh, for what it's worth as well, Pete Myers was on the bench for the Knicks, having played for the Bulls during uh, the That's 87 right. season. So there's heaps yeah. of great wrinkles in this game where there's former Bulls. Uh, then you've got the up-and-coming players. You've got a young Rod Strickland, who was uh, an amazing player to watch. Um, very charismatic guy as well. Um, loved to show off his uh, flair on the court. Um, there's just plenty of great things happening in this game as well. But there's even things like when I could hear the, the PA announcer. When you listen to this game, you can actually hear... Um, I'm blanking on his name, Tommy Edwards, um, 
this is just prior to when Ray Clay would come in and, and be the, the famous voice of the Bulls throughout the 90s. But you can hear Tommy Edwards uh, on the Bulls PA. Uh, and there's just things that just stick in my memory. And uh, I just cannot forget them even if I tried. So there's plenty of great things about this game. And, of course, it was a classic game towards the end as well. The Bulls hung on to win this uh, by two points. Um, Johnny Newman, as you mentioned before, one of the guys on the Knicks roster, had a wide-open three to actually possibly force a game seven had he made the shot. Um, but on top of everything else that was going on, the Chicago Stadium crowd were going ballistic. Uh, you had a, a young Doug Collins, of course, who was... So he put so much into his coaching and uh, his expressions and emotions. Of course, he didn't bottle anything. He left it all on the floor. You could just see how excited he was when the Bulls hung on to win that. But there was an incredible four-point play by um, Trent Tucker as well in the closing moment as well, which uh, almost kept the Knicks uh, in the series had they gone on to win. So just plenty of great things happening, not to mention a great, um, well, actually, I shouldn't say it was great, a, a fight between, I guess you'd say inverted commas, a fight uh, between Scottie Pippen and uh, Kenny Walker. Yeah, uh, who were, yeah, and both were ejected. Of course, Pippen, you know, being really important to the uh, Bulls. Uh, uh, Kenny Walker, not quite as important to the uh, Knicks. Uh, uh, the slam dunk contest win, uh, you know, uh, um, outside of that. But, uh, yeah, um, yeah, that was obviously not good for the uh, Bulls, but they were able to uh, pull it off anyway. Uh, Jordan with uh, 40 points and, I believe, uh, 10 assists in the uh, in the game. And, obviously, in another heroics, not quite as a dramatic um, heroics in uh, this one. I mean, uh, they won on Jordan free throws. Really, it was the uh, uh, the very, very close, as he talked about, the very, very close miss at the um, at the end from uh, Johnny Newman uh that uh, you could have could have changed history, but um, but yes, but uh, nevertheless, yeah, you, the atmosphere really stood out there in Chicago Stadium of just how pumped they were and how excited uh, they obviously were. You could tell that the Bulls, you know, had a lot of young energy, and and Collins obviously added to that, even though he did not last for the uh, uh, Bulls that much longer. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, this is really quite a. Um, quite a fantastic game. Anything else that stand out in terms of memories for this? Uh, well, this game also, interestingly, had Chuck Daly. I mean, this was the, I'm talking about the TBS, I think it was TBS telecast with Bob Neal and Steve Jones were the main commentators. But Chuck Daly, of course, the uh, Detroit coach at the time, was actually doing some special comments as well during this game. So his Pistons had already swept the Milwaukee Bucks uh, to, and were awaiting the winner of this series to play in the Eastern Conference Finals. Yet Chuck was commentating on the game. And also he was along the baseline, uh, according to what Bob Neal was saying at least, uh, watching the Pippen and Walker uh, fracas, I guess you'd say, and then he's he was commenting on that, saying, you know, they're both throwing punches, they they're going to be ejected or they should be, and and that actually possibly could have had some ramifications had Pippen actually been suspended, he would have sat out at least the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals against, of course, Chuck Daly's Pistons. So I thought that was quite interesting that Chuck was there um, doing a bit of media work uh, whilst his <laughs> Pistons were waiting to see who they'd play. Yeah, yeah, but perhaps you know, trying to uh, give some influence over uh, you know a, a possible uh, suspension there, but a um, uh, int- little conflict of interest there. But that's all right. Uh, everything uh, I-, I guess worked out uh, worked out for the best uh, there. And yeah, Chuck was a good. I mean, he, he was obviously really insightful about the game. Really, a uh, obviously terrific coach. And I was in my memory of him as a broadcaster was uh, a good broadcaster and, and did stand out during. Um, during this game yeah it's it's a fun one i i had kind of forgotten about the um 
you know, the, the context of the series. So it was nice to um, revisit that. You know, it's really interesting. It, it, this is kind of a broad what if, but we'll go ahead and say it. If, um, you know, Patino hadn't left for Kentucky and the Knicks had sort of continued this style of, you know, being more run and gun, shooting more threes, um, that kind of stuff, rather than, you know, eventually evolving into the slow it down, grind it out, Pat Riley, you know, um, physical defense team that they would later come into, how that would have changed the NBA at all in the 90s. Because I feel like, you know, Riley's Knicks were kind of the, the driver of the stylistic shift in the mid to late 90s of slowing things down. And, you know, the, the Bulls had a little bit to do with that as well. Obviously, you know, they were isolation. Well, they had the triangle, but they were, you know, they were more of a slow it down team at that point as well. You know, Jordan wasn't running up and down the court anymore, but uh, I don't want to necessarily, I mean, they did some isolation, but they weren't necessarily an isolation dominant team, even though they had Jordan. But I, I, it's a really interesting what if, if, um, you know, Riley doesn't become the Knicks coach and whether that influence is um, stuck there. And of course, how that changes, you know, those Knicks teams throughout the nineties that, you know, made the 94 finals and, you know, gave the uh, Bulls some, uh, you know, some tough playoff battles in the, uh, throughout the decade. Yeah, it's a, it is a great what if. Um, this was the second of Patino's yeah, two seasons as the head man of the Knicks and, uh, between him leaving the Knicks and then Pat Riley coming in, and I think in the 92 season, there was, um, I'm just having a quick look now on basketballreference.com, the uh, magnificent website. Let me just try and have a quick look here. Yeah, Stu Jackson and I think John McLeod's the other guy. Let me just go look. Yeah, John McLeod and Stu Jackson were the uh, coaches in between that period of time. Um, very interesting to see what could have gone on and, and what would have happened. And I guess um, another thing to take into account, during this 89 playoff series, the Knicks were the number two seed for... Uh, so the previous season, I'm just checking now, Patino had won 38 games, I think it was, uh, and then he'd won, let's have a look now, with 89-90. Yeah, 89, he actually had 52 wins. So they certainly were on the rise, yet um, he wore out his welcome. Uh, they changed their philosophies, and then uh, within a couple of years, Pat Riley entered, and who knows what could have been, but it certainly raises a great point of uh, what may have happened as the 1990s rolled in. Yeah, uh, it's it interesting to think about. Obviously, there's no conclusions there, but obviously that um, I, that that really was. I I, I do think that was. A, I don't know if you agree that Riley and the Knicks were you know, that influential in the kind of uh, the evolving of the style and of the pace of the um, of the '90s. But I do think of them as you know a big driver of that. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I definitely agree with that. So um, it was certainly, uh, I guess. You look at the importance of the coaches and uh, you have a big name like Pat Riley coming in and trying to put his imprint on the game and what the Knicks can do going forward. So they certainly had uh, continued success during a majority of his reign there in New York, but uh, unfortunately couldn't quite get to that uh, championship win. But of course, did go awfully close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about as close as you can get, actually. Yeah, that's for um, sure. Yeah. So one uh, one last thing before we uh, wrap it up, I I was wondering when watching some of these games, at what point do you think that Jordan was undisputedly the best player in the NBA? Do, hmm. do you think he'd already reached that by this point, or do you think it comes a little bit later, or you know what, what what's your take on that? Yeah, I I think oh that's another great question. I think it came a bit later on. Like he was a a fantastic individual player for the early years of his career, and then. As the Bulls started to assemble some greater uh, teammates and, and great players around him, particularly 
courtesy of the 87 draft when they got uh, Horace Grant and Scotty Pippen, as you alluded to a bit earlier, and then started to build the pieces and, and get these consummate role players who were happy to actually just play a role rather than actually try and be uh, more of a main man. That's when they started to build together and become more cohesive. So I think it was really into probably the early 90s is really when you could start to say that Jordan was hands down well, at least in my opinion, the uh, the greatest player in the league. But I think he didn't really earn that moniker until... And it didn't necessarily have to come from winning a championship. I think um, some people can just sort of lo- go straight to that line and say, well, he hadn't won his championship yet, so he wasn't the greatest. But he certainly became the best player in the league, I believe, um, probably in the first or second season of that championship run, the first three-peat. But I guess it could be argued it could have been earlier than that. He certainly had some fantastic seasons himself before in the late 80s, um, but was mostly doing individual stuff prior to that, uh, which sort of kept the Bulls uh, at least in the hunt, but they were never a serious contenders until they became more of a team. Yeah, yeah I, I, that, that's it's a hard one for me. I mean, I, I do think that obviously he won the MVP in 88, mm-hmm. and it was fan- fantastic that season. It was, you know, scoring incredibly well and really doing – it was incredibly well-rounded. I mean, you know, they, we talk about the, the kind of season that Westbrook had um, this season, and, and, and Jordan was having – obviously didn't literally have the triple-doubles, but he was – you know, he averaged something, you know, more than 30 points, more than eight rebounds, more than eight assists in a season. I mean, he was having that kind of mm-hmm. impact um, on a team that, you know, honestly didn't have a whole lot of other talent you know around him is kind of a similar type of context where really he had to do everything for them to be you know successful and later on as, as you talked about you know Pippen and um and Grant becoming better players who could be trusted to do more um you know someone like Cartwright who's more of a steady veteran and you know can can you know you can create some offense in the post and you know they obviously you know uh, Phil Jackson brings the triangle and his philosophies in for them to be more team oriented and that worked but yeah I, I I'm not a I can't exactly pin it down because, I mean, um, obviously once Bird, you know, really suffered his injuries that slowed him down, I don't think he was a candidate for best in the league at that point. But Magic was still, you know, fantastic with scoring more and was, you know, really complete. Um, you know, Barkley was excellent as well. Uh, you know, Kim Olajuwon, you know, really stood out during this time, even though, you know, his team wasn't quite having as much success. I mean, some of the numbers he was putting up and, you know, the his ability to defend. You know, guys like Carl Malone obviously were standing out too. So, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of candidates for, you know, among the best. I mean, I would say it was probably... Uh, you know, between between Jordan and Magic at this point, and then I think in another year, definitely in two years, I think Jordan obviously you know uh, took it from him. And I, you know, I, obviously the '91 Finals is when it's ceremoniously you know passing the torch between you know um, Magic and Jordan, and you know the, the Lakers to the Bulls as you know the, the two dynasties. But um, you know, it, it, it was close to that time, probably slightly before than what I would say Jordan had indisputably pulled ahead. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd agree with that. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the Lakers has had a few injury issues during those 91 finals, which, again, is a, a what if. If they had have had a healthy, full roster and complement of players to choose from, then what may have actually happened? Because, of course, the Lakers did win game one in Chicago uh, in 1991. But uh, good that you mentioned uh, when you compared with uh, Russell Westbrook and his fantastic season with the triple-doubles and whatnot, uh, in this 89 season that we're been mostly referencing, Jordan had a, a span of maybe uh, 10 in 11 or 10 in 12 games where he actually had triple doubles. Uh, he was playing the point for some of that period of time as well. So he certainly was doing everything uh, he could to get the Bulls uh, to move up in at least the uh, standings and get the wins. Yes, yeah, the stats, uh, by the way, yeah, 32.5 points per game, uh, eight rebounds, eight assists, uh, 2.9 steals, and a 0.8 blocks. So mm. uh, 
not too bad. <laughs> incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah, shooting fifty four percent too. You know, um, I mean, just yeah, it was obviously, uh, you know, it wasn't much a three pointer at that point, but was but everything else was obviously fantastic. So yeah, true. Uh, yeah. So um, I I think that most of the people who listen to over and back also are aware of uh, in all fairness. But for those who uh, aren't familiar, can you tell them a, a little bit about the show and what you do? Yeah, sure, mate. Uh, well, the uh, podcast is called In All Airness. I'm not. I'm always waxing and waning on whether or not that's a good title or not. But that's what I went with, and uh, for better or worse, that's what it's called going forward. But uh, I love to either break down particular games or. Uh, chat with former players or coaches, uh, media that were involved with the NBA in the previous years. Uh, mostly it's focusing on the 1980s and 1990s, but I have had, uh, was fortunate enough to have uh, Rick Barry as a pre- previous guest on the show. So, of course, um, can delve back into earlier years, which yourself and Rich obviously are um, experts at doing as well in terms of uh, breaking down the, the things that have happened in the past. Um, but yeah, I love to chat with the former players. Um, I've been very fortunate to have some really great and wide-ranging guests. Uh, I've always been fascinated by some of the lesser-known players, so it doesn't have to be the superstars, uh, even stars. I'm just happy to chat to guys who have perhaps had a different vantage point and have been maybe sitting on the bench watching and coming off the bench uh, or just being having tried out with the team and never quite made a roster. Um, so, yeah, I like to in, invite uh, previous players on that have had all kinds of different experiences. Some have played overseas. Some have played in the CBA, uh, back in the ABA, whatever it might have been. So uh, it's quite a, a variety. And uh, at the moment as well, Aaron and myself, we're uh, diving into season by season, covering Jordan's 30 years prior, the uh, NBA season. So it's not just Jordan, but also we do cover some of the events that happened throughout the season. And we've just uncovered some fantastic little tidbits. So that's also worth uh, checking out if uh, you're so interested. So anybody that does enjoy the history of basketball, I'm sure will probably uh, enjoy sampling some of the episodes where I've uh, been lucky enough to to have quite a few wide ranging and uh, yeah, very good guests. Yeah, you guys have done you know an amazing job you know with with the um, the series you're talking about. And I, I learned so much from that. Yeah, it is you mentioned not just about Jordan, but about you know what was going on in the league at the time. Really interesting storylines. You know, it, it's a terrific stuff. And you know, you've had some great guests and some great research, and uh, it, it's very inspiring when I listen to your show. To um, you know, to see you guys doing that. There's a lot of uh, great NBA history work going on. You know, throughout in other podcasts and other writing, of course. And, and good stuff so it's, it's fun to be part of that community and i'm uh i'm so glad that we finally were able to uh, get you on the show oh thank you very much for having me on it's been uh, great to to reminisce and uh good work for yourselves with yourself and uh, rich as well with what you guys are doing and uh, as you mentioned that the nba history uh community that is out there as far as other podcasters or people writing about it uh whoever it may be um it is just fantastic to be a part of no matter how small a part uh i may play in it but i love being involved yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. Uh, you can find us at the step back at fansided.com. And uh, if you uh, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating and review on uh, iTunes. And you can also find us on uh, Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back uh, NBA. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon.